I'm Daniel Thornton, uh, Program Director here at the Institute for Government. Uh, uh, some very familiar faces uh, in the audience today, but also perhaps some new people. Um, so um, I'll, I'll say that we're not planning any, uh, any fire alarms, and if, if the fire alarm does go off, please go down the stairs that you, you came in and assemble by the statue of King George. <laughs> it's the Institute for Government, you know. Yeah. Um, the Institute, uh, as many of you will know, uh, is interested in, in helping to make government more effective. Um, that's very much the subject of discussion this evening. Uh, we have a strand of work on digital government uh, here at the Institute. We have a strand of work on public services. Uh, we have a strand of work on um, uh, showing uh, how government works uh, in data. And we're very pleased that that data is well represented in the publication that we're talking about this evening. Uh, we're here to launch a digital uh, manifesto about better public services. You'll see uh, you have a, a large publication and a, and a small publication for the uh, for people who are too impatient to read this, uh, this weighty tome. But I recommend both, to you, both of them to you. Um, uh, this is a, a collaborative effort. You're going to hear from people on the stage this evening. Mark Thompson uh, shortly is going to discuss it. Uh, Jerry Fishenden is also uh, the lead author of this uh, publication. Um, uh, and then you'll uh, hear from Leslie Crowley, who, um, uh, Cowley, who um, uh, is the chair of DVLA uh, and Companies House, uh, bringing a very practical perspective uh, to bear on, on the discussion. Uh, I wanted to stress that this is a very much a collaborative publication. Um, uh, and in fact, some of the other uh, contributors are in, in the audience. Uh, Will Venters, another of the authors. Uh, Will, welcome. Uh, and Andy Beale, um, and uh, Alan Brown, James Duncan, James Finlay, Sally Howes, Renati Sampson, and Simon Wardley. So They're all at the back. They're all at the back, are they? Well, I hope that doesn't mean they're going to be misbehaving. Um, um, so the themes of this uh, manifesto about better public services very much reflect uh, themes that we have addressed in, in our work at the Institute about openness, about modularity of government, about making government more effective and more efficient. Um, so we're going to have a, a good discussion this evening. Um, we have a, a good full audience, um, so I'm going to be quite tough on time management uh, so that we make sure we get cont contributions from lots of different people. I think part of the point of, the, of this manifesto is to, is to uh, start a debate about how government can manage uh, public services better, and that means contributions from lots of people. So uh, I'm going to be tough on timekeeping, um, and uh, we're going to finish on the nail at seven. So um, I'll talk no more and hand over to Mark Thompson, who uh, will introduce the manifesto. Uh, over to you, Mark. Thanks so much, Daniel. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for, for coming here this evening. Um, it's really fantastic to have a, such a good turnout. Thanks very much also to Leslie for being our discussant on the, um, our, on the panel here, so much appreciated. Um, and uh, Daniel knows me. He knows my capacity to talk for Britain, so he said if I do go over 10 minutes, he'll actually just cut me off. So um, I'm going to try and, try, and, uh, try and keep to time. Um, that's the manifesto. You've got one. There. I think there are less um, green papers, just because there was a cost issue. But uh, that we've got a um, uh, we've got a, man uh, a manipulable version on our internet website, which hopefully we're going to put up a bit later. But um, it's all very very downloadable and accessible to everybody. 
Um, okay, let's get started. We gather here this evening in an atmosphere of unprecedented national disarray. Brexit, the health service, the housing crisis, law and order, our response to terrorism, austerity, devolution, immigration and taxation continue to divide us. But there's one underpinning issue that affects us all, the future of our shared public services. Yet our councils have started going bankrupt. Our social services are at breaking point, our prosecution, probation and prison services are creaking, our NHS lacks doctors and nurses, our schools lack teachers, police are an increasing rarity on our streets, and homelessness is on the rise. We're also living longer. Our ageing population may consume half of government revenues by 2061. We've got lots of stats like this in the green, green uh, paper, so have a look. And we expect to consume more but have less to fund it with. And with UK debt at 90% of GDP, we're the worst performing advanced economy in the world. It gets a bit more optimistic than this as we go through. <laughs> Over 7%, 4.6 million people are in persistent poverty. And this is all before <coughs> Brexit. In response, we believe we speak for the many who are challenging the orthodoxy that the only two options on the table are higher taxes or more cuts. There is a third option, and that's reform of the system itself. Accordingly, today's manifesto and the accompanying more detailed green paper set out a new, more ambitious plan for our public institutions. We propose this evening the most radical infrastructural reinvigoration since Beveridge or even Brunel. In 1941, Beveridge was asking... How would one plan social insurance now if one had a clear field without being hampered by vested interests of any kind? This evening, we ask, how would one plan a modern internet-enabled state if one had a clear field without being hampered by vested interests of any kind? You might reply, ah, nice idea, but organisationally unrealistic, or financially impractical, or politically naive. I suspect those are the things that Les is going to say. Um, or frankly, how dare these idiots compare themselves to Beveridge or Brunel? So how would we do it, and why is it so ambitious? Well, we look at modern internet-based organisations and ask, what if our public services became as flexible, streamlined, and easy to use as Uber, but with fair remuneration and in public ownership? As convenient as Amazon's operations, and as intuitive as Google, but with 100% of the money invested into the front line instead of being pocketed by shareholders? And all the while protecting citizens' personal data rather than monetizing and exploiting it. In an age in which the seductiveness and efficiency of online social and economic exchange have turned Jeff Bezos into the richest human ever to walk the planet, can we harness some of those smarts ethically and in a way that enables us all to share in the benefits? The ambition is because, to coin a rather more famous speechwriter, we believe that, yes, we can. For successful modern internet businesses, the only thing that counts is the special way in which they add value to their customer. Much of the rest is consumed from others, often enabled via the internet. Um, sorry, getting lost here. A modern public sector should be similarly focused on citizen-facing roles. Doctors, nurses, teachers, daycare centre workers, social services, librarians. And these people are pretty much the only roles that citizens actually care about. Yet in much of the public sector, we see the exact opposite happening. Far from modernising and reallocating resources to the front line, we see a ballooning of managerial and admin roles in all areas of education, health and the civil service. And we take you through some of that in the Green Paper. The numbers cited in the paper are staggering. <clears throat> 
English local government has 353 councils, each surrounded by health, social care, housing, blue light and third sectors, each with their own infrastructure, suppliers and institutional processes, delivering almost the same services under the same policies and legislation. They have no reason to be different from one another in the way they operate at all. None. Uh, I am definitely sort of... Um, hang on. Five, page six. Here we go. Instead, a modern, internet-enabled way of organising local government would resemble Heart FM, locally configured regional services underpinned by standard playlists of common processes and functions consumed over the internet for very little cost. Our green paper conservatively estimates that doing this could save 5.2 billion every year, or the potential to free up an additional 14.7 million for each of the 353 councils, at a time when local authority budgets across Britain were cut by 18 billion in real terms between 2010 to 2015. Applying the same model to our 650 duplicated NHS trusts, we conservatively estimate annual savings of 7 billion every year. That's the equivalent of 191,985 junior doctors. Indeed, taking our public services as a whole, we conservatively estimate we could save 46 billion year on year. That's over an additional 1 million frontline public servants. So, how would it work? Well, at the heart of our proposals is a new digital public infrastructure fit for the 21st century. We envisage a new digital commons of standard Lego brick processes and functions that would enable much more effective sharing, distribution and ownership of information, services and technology right across the public sector. By helping expose and remove large-scale duplication of costs, processes, functions and systems across the public sector, this digital commons would redirect resources to frontline services, into the people-centred activities that matter most to citizens and which cannot and should not be automated. It would also re-empower public servants themselves. Imagine you're a charity worker who wants to set up a pop-up service in your local library. You simply go onto GovUK and create your own state-of-the-art back-office organisational function there and then from the shared digital commons of standard Lego brick components. Maybe a bit of workflow, some case handling, registration, data storage, maybe some analytics. Consumed straight out of the cloud like Netflix movies and constituted around the citizen as a joined-up service. Lego government would also empower democracy. As a citizen, journalist or MP, I could also log on to GovUK and browse a live DNA of the services provided by my council or NHS trust and see what they cost and whether they're composed of standard Lego bricks or wasting precious resources and I can suggest how to design them better. This surely has to be a better approach to public service design and accountability. We've described how Lego government would work. How would it look and feel? Here's a prediction based on the best digital outcomes in other industries. In 30 years' time, local services won't be delivered from expensive and, uh, and duplicated organisations anymore. Everyone will still have their local politicians and democratic accountability, but there will be fewer administrators and lots and lots more locally accountable doctors, uh, teachers, nurses and other frontline public servants. Other functions of less public value will have gone they'll be consumed and streamed like Netflix movies. It'll be the same with parts of Whitehall departments and with agencies. So how would we achieve it? Well, we call for political engagement, ownership and, yes, bravery to commit to a radical infrastructural reinvigoration based on the application of modern, internet-enabled organisational designs and practices. This is not an issue to be kicked into political touch for our children to sort out. 
The manifesto programme we outline, with more detail provided in that green paper, would be as follows. One, distinguish everywhere between frontline and overheads so we can all see clearly where improvements can be made. Two, publish everything in a digital commons that belongs to everyone so we can expose and remove duplication of overheads and move towards transparent and adaptable Lego government. Three, establish a public value index so we can understand and monitor what good services and outcomes look like from the perspective of citizens and frontline workers. Four, support a major shift of accountability to frontline workers as they innovate and improve our services. In other words, not top-down. Five, look after people and services as the changes are made so we act with compassion to all those in roles and functions no longer required. We recognise, of course, that making these changes won't be easy. Our public sector is big and complex. Change needs to be carefully cultivated, nurtured and scaled and can't be imposed from above as some kind of grand plan. We need to understand that real modernisation of our public services will create winners and losers and will meet with quiet but effective resistance in many places and must compete with the immediacy of Brexit. We suggest starting small, led by pioneer groups of public sector bodies keen to work in the open to become more efficient and transfer value to the front line. We can see what works, what problems arise, what value it brings and whether it helps. Or we can ignore this opportunity for civic innovation and continue to preside helpless as the continual structural decline of our 20th century public institutions turns to social unrest. We offer this manifesto and accompanying green paper not as the next... That's supposed to be a joke, by the way. You're supposed to kind of... Uh, not as the next step along a well-trodden road, but as a blueprint for the creation of a better and more ambitious road ahead. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Mark. Rousing stuff. Leslie, what did you make of that? Please do, yes. It's a very small stage, though, so this could be quite interesting. <laughs> I managed not to fall off, which is what my uh, son did at his nativity. Okay, so, so thank you, Mark, for a great presentation. Um, it's actually really relevant to me in my current roles, um, but also it's relevant to me as a former CEO of one of those great modern internet digital companies where I was CEO of Nominet. Uh, for more than a decade. So I've been asked to reply. Um, I have to say these comments are my personal views, not those of DVLA or Companies House, as you would expect, not those of National Archives either, uh, where I'm their lead non-exec, nor of any of their various departments and all that goes with them. Um, I'm an independent chair. Uh, one of my favourite TV programmes, which I know is shared by some of you, Yes Minister, Bernard once talked about chairs and said that there were two kinds of chair to go with two kinds of minister. One sort folds instantly, and the other sort goes round and round in circles. I'm neither of those, as you probably will gather. Um, as an independent, I'm actually a chair that can speak their own mind and bring strong views and experience where needed. So I'm a bit more of one of those solid oak carvery chairs you might see. I can see why you're calling this a manifesto. Um, there are such important issues to debate and I fully agree with you that public services are facing unprecedented challenges and we need to rethink and redesign how they operate and how we deliver our services. 
And I actually very much like the Lego analogy. But my experience is that the standardization of the common building blocks in the public sector is already in motion. In my roles, I'm seeing services completely redesigned around the customer and some really fundamental changes as a result, particularly at DVLA, as you might expect. But as you say, this change of approach really needs to be much more bottom-up. It go, needs to go faster and it needs to be spread more widely across the whole public sector. However, there are some key lessons to be learned from the public sector building block experience so far. For example, if you decide to standardise a building block and make it mandatory and then make it really tricky to use, such as the case of Verify, then the case for standardisation and the building block approach is very much weakened for absolutely everybody that tries to follow later. And I can see colleagues from NAO in the audience, so I know you'll have far more to say about that one than I. But I do feel also that the case for simplification itself can be oversimplified. If you're Amazon, you can focus on providing services to your core and most profitable demographic, many of whom are in this room, and you're then able to ignore those who want something different. In the public sector, when you provide a service to the entire population, the number of edge cases is actually potentially huge and cannot be ignored. They can't go elsewhere, and so your building blocks will inevitably become much more complex. In the green paper, when you get round to reading the big thing, um, there are a couple of mentions of DVLA, and so, of course, as one might expect, I'd like to respond to those. Um, in particular, some of the sections around vehicle excise duty, which I think you're suggesting might be better collected by insurance companies. And on the face of it, great idea. The suggestion is that you could tax your car at the same time you renew your insurance, which is given as an example of a way of removing 47 million transactions and 650 million, DVLA is big scale, online checks a year that are made using the current system. If you're seeking to reduce the amount of time, not much, that it takes to tax your car each year, you can all set a, a direct debit up, of course, and we'll do that automatically for you. And unlike uh, insurance auto renewal, you don't have to renew with the, um, you don't risk getting fleeced by your insurers. That kind of inertia thing when it comes up to renewal and you really can't be bothered to make a change, I think tie, tying in the tax disc or vehicle excise duty into that process actually is a, is a retrograde step. And of the 650 million checks that we see each and every year, some are actually driven by applications that people have created in fantastic ways that receive anonymized data, but really are checks that are helping to provide services to the end users. Some people use our service to check that a car they're thinking of buying really is legit and does have a current MOT or checking that the car outside their house, which maybe has been there a while, whether it be their own car, a neighbour's or someone else's, is actually taxed and legit too. Whilst taxing and insuring your car are actually done at the same time when the car is new, they're frequently not in step after the first owner goes on and sells the car. And there's actually between 9 and 13 million cars changing owners each year. I don't know who's, who does all this buying and selling. I've had a car for ages, but hey. 
But with that velocity of change, how would insurers cope with that churn and the need to refund duty after a sale, or with people who are entitled to reduced vehicle excise duty because of disabilities? And they would need to check, obviously, with DWT to check that those claims are correct. There's also value in having a single source of reliable data for road safety and enforcement. I can go on, as you can gather, but my point is what appears to be relatively simple, a way of um, actually saving transactions and so on, on the surface may well not be when you go below the surface. Moving on, I agree with you fully that moving to digital is much, much more than simply moving paper online. For me, a lot of it is about the people, actually, not the IT, not the digital. But amongst other things, it provides opportunities for a complete process redesign, starting with the user. And it worries me, though, that much of the focus in the public sector is on the external-facing services. And when internal services within the public sector are referred to, people often talk about shared services, which haven't always been a roaring success, have they? Or recruitment often given as the main examples. And in my experience, there's much more work to be done on the IT that frontline workers and administrators actually use to perform their roles. At a time of resource constraints, this can become the poor relation compared to the external facing services. I also think that there are elements of the usual public sector bad, private sector good coming into the debate, and I've now worked in both. And at DVLA, after more than a decade of being outsourced to the private sector, we've brought IT back in-house and have been able to make huge cost savings and improvements as a result, as well as laying a foundation for a much more flexible and adaptable system going forward. I actually view that as a private sector bad, public sector good case study. And as the former leader of a modern digital organisation, I now know that there are things to learn from the public sector as much as the public sector can learn from those organisations too. You've also said that the service-orientated culture of the internet needs to come to the public sector. As somebody from the internet sector for more than a decade, I'd say that there's some, actually some great bits of transferable culture, but there's also some really undesirable bits too. Some parts are still incredibly immature and wild west, and I know that from personal experience. So I actually feel, very surprisingly to my family, a need to stand up for the civil servants that I meet, because almost all of them have exactly the service-orientated culture that many think is needed. They've actually got it already. Some of the systems get in the way, granted, but they've got that culture. And if anything, some parts of the private sector need to reflect on the fact that their culture is actually a profit-orientated culture dressed up as one that has a service orientation. I fully agree with the call, lastly, to look after people and services as the changes are made, but I really find this section of the manifesto needs much more thought and development. Reallocation from admin and management roles to the front line, where ro roles are no longer required, is not at all as simple as it sounds in my experience. You only need so many frontline roles for starters. I also worry about reports that have large sums of money mentioned, such as the 46 billion here. Eye-watering figures sometimes grab attention and prompt action, but they can also then become the KPIs for change afterwards. 
46 billion may be a great estimate, but it may actually be an overestimate or an underestimate. Are we being ambitious enough? But the killer for me is, will we be prepared to commit to both saving that money and redirecting it into frontline services? I can think of many who may well wish to save that money, but then not go and reinvest. And finally, I fully understand the desire not to have the manifesto imposed as some sort of grand plan downwards. But I wonder how far and quickly the ideas that already exist and are developing will spread if you don't have both a carrot and a stick. So I do admire the thinking that has gone into your work, and I think I challenge you to do much more. And I thank you for all the thinking and work from the team that's gone into it so far. And I very much hope that this launch marks the beginning of that debate, starting with this evening's dialogue. Thank you. Thank you very much, Leslie. So, Jerry, I heard Leslie say that some of this stuff in the manifesto is already happening. I, I heard Leslie say that it needs to go faster. Um, I heard that uh, some of the building blocks that are already in place aren't very good in terms of verifying shared services. Uh, I heard some scepticism about some of the claims made and the call for more thinking. What's your reaction? I was, I was actually quite encouraged by the critique. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was very accurate. And in a sense, it... it it supports what we're trying to say, which is imposing things from the centre, building shiny things, and then telling everyone to use them doesn't work. It didn't work last time around in the early 2000s, and it hasn't worked terribly well this time around in some particular areas. But there are great pockets of work that are going on inside NHS trusts, local government and elsewhere, that are not getting the funding they need, while at the very same time at the centre... There is an enormous amount of money going into building these big shiny things that nobody particularly needs. So our call is as much for us to open up and expose what's going on both at the centre and at the edge and say, actually, if we had that data, we could look at this and go, these people are doing a really good piece of work that potentially the rest of the sector, other trusts or other local government could tap into. Why don't we help fund some of those through a more innovative model that lets the money flow to those people closest to the service redesign that we were talking about uh, in the manifesto. And I think the other part is around at the beginning stage, and I take your critique of DVLA and the many options open to it and why it does things in certain ways. The, the underlying point we were making is at the moment we see a rush into service design which seems to assume the current way of doing policy and the current way of doing services just needs representing in some way on a website. So instead of a form on a website, maybe it'd be a few pages that go from one to the other, and it looks cleaner and it's nicer to use, but it doesn't go back to the policy question of how might we achieve the outcome in a better way. So the examples may not be terribly resonant to you at DVLA, but it was an illustration of the point that if you step back and think about how might we achieve the outcome before you start doing service design you need to start thinking about the multiple options that exist and maybe put them in the open so that people can look at them and go, those have some merits, your critiques would come to the fore. People could understand why things are being designed the way they are. People might say, ah, oh, but actually there's a slightly better way over here that nobody's thought of before. And I just think if we could open up and get many eyeballs on these problems instead of 
people thinking at the centre they know best and can deliver a new system that then struggles to gain adoption, we would all benefit because we could begin to look at that sort of public commons of, of information that would enable us to make much better informed decisions. Thank you. I guess one of my questions reading the manifesto was you're calling for a less hierarchical system, you're calling for a more open system, um, as you said, money to be distributed to places where things are working. But, I mean, the model we've got is that, that the money comes in at the top of the system, crudely to simplify, Treasury gets the money and distributes it through the hierarchy. And everybody who gets money has to explain up the hierarchy what they're going to do with the money. Um, and that doesn't lead to the sort of distribution to, you know, the kind of openness that you're, you're talking about. So it strikes me that the funding model is a big part of, of, of what, if you want to see these changes, how, how, they, would be, how they would come about. Does that, does that seem right to you? Or am I yeah, so I think you've, you've seen that in quite a tactical way with things like the move to cloud, where you've got budgets that are defined either as capital or revenue, and somebody may be trying to shift something to a better way of doing something, but because somebody, as the budget was originally approved, has said, no, that's for capital, you can't use it in a different way, so you're better off buying servers rather than because that's allowed in the capital budget but not using the cloud because that's in the revenue budget. I agree that I think some of this needs to go back to educating politicians and because a lot of this is signed off at parliament, parliamentary level, that looks down the budgets quite often and the way they're hypothecated down through the system, that we need a better understanding of digital isn't just about trickling the money down through the system and then polishing the current way of doing things. It's about politicians, policymakers, and the public having a better debate about how do we achieve these desirable outcomes in ways we may not have considered before the internet came along. So it's about improving the debate as much as changing the system. I mean, you think you, your argument is if, if people understand these issues better, then the debate will happen and, and the change will come. Is that, is that, is that what I hear you saying? Definitely part of why we did the manifesto, because my, my concern working with a lot of organisations, both public and private, and I do agree that public organisations can do a much better job than private. Sometimes it's a question of scale and both public and private sector can, can struggle at scale for the same reasons. But I go into a lot of organisations, digital seems to become uh, tagged as being about website redesign or building things rather than about rethinking the way organisations operate and service models. Uh, and I'm not surprised in a way because that's the sort of banner headlines that we see come from the centre. But also many organisations don't have non-exec directors who actually understand that digital is about more than website design or, or even uh, board of managers that understand that senior management team. So I think we need to look at right the way through um, the public sector, if you like, how we, we can communicate more effectively the, the art of the possible and then open up this debate to, to more people, hopefully, in a well-informed way. What about the point Leslie made, and for either of you, um, about carrots and sticks? I mean, so a non-executive director might have an interest in, in kind of seeing radical change in an organisation, but do the people who work for it necessarily have, a, have that interest? It, in my experience, the people on the front line and often the people at the top have more in common than some of the people that sit between them. Uh, people at the front line are often coming up with really innovative ideas. You walk around and chat to border force officers or other people actually doing the job. They've got great insights. 
into what would make that job much quicker and save them 15 minutes per day or something per passenger having to go off into a back room and come back. And yet a lot of people in between are designing new systems based on assumptions, partly because the data doesn't exist and sometimes I think because they don't talk to the front line. But if I talk to the senior people, they want the very same thing, which is a really efficient system at the front line as well. But we don't seem to have that nervous system between the front line at the moment because the data is not available. We're not being open and transparent enough, even within organisations. And very few that I've been in can actually point at data that enables them to be working out where they can or shouldn't be best devoting their resources and their efforts. People just don't know where their underlying problems are in a lot of organisations. So one last question from me before I open up to the audience. So please be thinking of your brief uh, uh, questions. Uh, Leslie, so what, can you expand a bit on carrots and sticks? What, what did you mean? Because I think, I mean, I, I heard you agreeing that the, the sort of changes talked about in here are broadly the right direction. You've got some questions about some of the details, but, but it's broadly the right direction. But you're kind of, question, you were questioning, is this going to happen without kind of, Something I, to make yeah, it happen. I think what I was pushing back against was this kind of notion of a kind of grand surge upwards, which can take a very long time to happen, or almost kind of crowdsourcing some of these developments. And again, you'll, you'll get some enthusiasts, but it won't necessarily scale. Um, and I guess my carrot and stick thing was around, you know, some of the challenges actually management and others getting out of the way and current ways of doing things getting out of the way, as opposed to being a top-down diktat or an upwards movement. Um, but I think, you know, it does need leadership from boards and others to say, this is the direction. And that's, I suppose, I'm, I'm, I don't use many sticks at board. I don't need to, because they get it. But not all organisations do. Go on, then. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of observers attribute maybe some of the early success of, sort of digital efforts in the UK to the kind of alignment of the moon and the planets. And you had, you had, a, you had an MCO in Francis Moore who absolutely got some of these things um, and was prepared to use carrot and stick um, and, and some, some great public servants as well who worked very closely with them. There was the political backing, but the acceptance that things were going to be different. And you know, if you asked um, any major FTSE chief exec uh, you went to a shareholders meeting and said, how do you think the internet is going to affect your business, the services you provide, you know, what's going to, are you a blockbuster or Netflix? You'd expect a, a, an answer, um, and that answer is likely to involve disruption and change to the business model. And if there's a kind of, if we can sum this project almost to anything, it's about trying to steer the digital discussion about future public services in the digital age to discussion of the business model and challenging the existing uh, ways of doing things rather than a front-end or a technology-focused Discussion. So, so I think, and I welcome that. I mean, it's exactly what we're calling for. Is is, um, and I think there is. It is possible we could open it up later to, to talk about sticks as well as carrots here. Um, but I think it's trying to, it you know, trying to gain permission for a bit more of a national conversation about what a what a change in the public sector traditional business model actually looks like, and who are the winners and who are the losers. Thank you, Mark. So over to you, um, your first sir, um, well done. Um, please wait for the mic, please introduce yourself and please be brief. Uh, uh, Richard Giffen, Department of International Trade. I'm currently working in a space where we have both traditional Whitehall policy making and agile digital development, sometimes on the same piece of work at exactly the same time. It's a hugely challenging space to be working in. Thinking about disruption and change, what 
what might need to happen to our policy making process and even our institutional arrangements to, to make this work in practice? Uh, I saw a question, yeah, Jack there. Uh, let's take a couple, uh, uh, three in fact. Hi there, yeah, J Jack Pershke. I uh, lead the digital government business at Atos and have worked in this space for, I don't know, 15 years, I suppose. Um, I'm encouraged and depressed all at the same time slightly by this evening. Um, I'm encouraged because I think this is obviously important stuff and I absolutely think that digital needs to be pushed out of technology and into business reform. I'm slightly depressed in that I'm fairly sure I went to almost identical conference 10 years ago uh, where all the same points were made and I'm not quite sure why we're still here. Um, my other ob observation would be Essentially what this Lego concept seems to be is recognising patterns uh, across government, storing them in a commons and allowing for reuse. Um, that kind of already happens um, in the sense that uh, where we have patterns, for example, I don't know, five years ago we noticed everyone was spending a fortune on data centres, uh, what we actually needed was, was cloud. It gets stored in a commons but it's not organised by government, it's a capitalistic capitalism commons whereby private vendors get to do it. So my question, and apologies for slightly going on, is um, to what extent can these um, uh, patterns be provided by enterprising private sector individuals who might notice that actually the workflow management or the document management or the business process management uh, is similar at uh, Croydon Council as it is at the NHS Trust and therefore I'm going to go and provide it. Why on earth does the government have to get involved? And over here, uh, Stefan. Yeah. Stefan Czarniowski, I'm the strategy director at DWP, which puts me in the dinosaur category, I think. Um, I too slightly feel that we've been having this conversation for a while. So one challenge and a question, I guess. The challenge is that um, we were having a debate about better websites, but that debate finished. We are, in lots of places, already having the debate you seem to be calling for. So I'm slightly puzzled about where the gap is between what feels to me the reality of what's going on in government and the perception that clearly exists outside it. And that relates to the point Mark just made about um, the rather special period of Francis Maud's leadership of the digital agenda in government, where um, what was distinctive about that is that it was distinctive, but was treated by GDS in its early years as though that was the new normal. So the thought at the beginning that we need more political ownership and bravery, yes, we do. Yes, we have done for as long as this agenda has been running, which is at least 20 years. Um, and this is not the right room of people to deliver it. So where's that going to come from? Thanks very much. Okay. Um, who wants to pile in first? I, Mark, I can see Mark. <laughs> Mark. That's a, well, I have, have a start on, on some of this. So, so I think... I think it's very important for us just to preface this with, with th this is in part an acknowledgement that not nearly enough has happened with that project. And, and um, I think in no way does the fact that we feel certainly that not enough has happened and we could open up you know, the his history of the last 10 years and what we might feel gone wrong. Um, but in, in no way invalidates the arguments, in no way invalidates what we see is happening um, in successful internet-enabled organizations elsewhere. And, and we're certainly not saying 
public sector bad, private sector good, far from it. Um, uh, there's a chap over there at the back who you know, is aware of an insurance company that has no less than a multinational 350 CRM databases around the place or, you know, so absolutely not um, a kind of public sector, private sector bad. Um, to policy making, um, and, and I think there's a little bit of that in, in, in your last question as well. I mean, many of us will be familiar with the, with the notion of government as a platform. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I think there is a sense already coming out. How, do, how on earth do we break, um, you know, to accelerate things and, and break the kind of uh, the inertia of where, where we're at? How do we get more political engagement? Um, how does the policy process provide a bit of a kind of stick as well as, as, well as carrots? Are we being too distributed about this? Um, I'm kind of picking that up um, quite a lot. Uh, I mean, I think, in a sense, you know, I would personally like to see uh, more policy which explicitly thinks about government as a platform-related uh, policymaking. In other words, government communicating, educating, setting standards about infrastructure, about you know, taking these things very seriously, um, and giving a lot of thought to encouraging investment and innovation around those. And one of GDS's favourite kind of service design standards. Um, uh, I, you know, I liked was designed for consistency and not for uniformity. I thought that's actually for me the most powerful of all the design standards. Um, and that's, you know, you, you don't quite know who's going to come and play, how the services are going to evolve. Um, you know, I think the interesting open banking with the FCA is an interesting piece of policy about that's pure government as a platform. Um, you know, it's saying what can government do that is unique. Um, that, uh, that, that, that nobody else in the private sector can do. And in this instance, of course, it's encouraging banks to open up data with our permission, um, uh, which hopefully will trigger a kind of plethora of investment and innovation from private and third sectors in ways that we haven't even thought of. Only government in that trusted position can play that role. So I would like to see more policy that thinks about business model design, uh, doesn't think about here's a public service, here's our policy for it, and there's the private sector, and starts to think about that kind of blend would, would excite me you know, a lot more. Um, okay, I'm going to okay. call on the others for, for the others. Leslie? Uh, yes, yeah, so three quite different questions in a way, but a common theme. Why are we still talking about this now? Um, and I, I think we're still talking about this now because people have got in the way. Circumstances have got in the way. Brexit currently get in, gets in the way. Um, and I think support and, and money hasn't been as forthcoming um, as it might have been, let alone um, leadership. For me, for me, I think a lot of this stuff is happening, which I think I was trying to say earlier, but there's something around the pace, the velocity um, of change that, that really needs to, to increase. I think one of my frustrations with the public sector is it feels incredibly slow. So, you know, I can, I can quite predict that I will be here in five years' time if I'm still around saying more needs to happen and so on. But it does happen. It just moves much more slowly than, than I think I'm used to elsewhere. Um, Richard, I think I heard your question of, about um, Agile and everything else around procurement, for example. I think we really need to work out how they can work together as opposed to against each other. Um, and Jack's question about entrepreneurs, I think absolutely there needs to be a, do we make this, do we buy this, can we buy this? And I do hear that in the organisations I'm involved in. It's not something that's not happening for me. Jerry, quickly. Yeah, I think there's probably is a strand that runs between those and in terms of why we've been having the same conversation, I guess that's why we've did the manifesto, just to say I think we all see great pockets of work going on and we're equally as frustrated as a lot of other people that it doesn't seem to have the pace um, or indeed the recognition that it did perhaps even a few years ago. Um, 
I, I think what was interesting in the way there's definitely a role for the private sector and I think the biggest thing is about stepping back and if we can identify the requirements properly we can work out which of those we can be consuming from existing private sector services or those which are so distinct to the public sector we need to commission some work to be done whether that's in-house or from SMEs or whoever. Although I would note that it, it took quite a forceful minister to drive a change in behaviour on some of the suppliers' side uh, in order to get better value for money for the taxpayer from the, some of the private sector providers. And we saw some quite significant changes both in pricing and in the relationship between the public sector and some of the private sector providers and a welcome influx of, of SMEs and new ideas and actually you know, entrepreneurs and other people that came in on the back of that wave. I think what would have enabled that better and which got largely forgotten in the, um, uh, in the web era stampede was the, the API part, the open application program <laughs> interfaces that was the major part of Martha Lane's Fox original report which was opening up public sector which is very much a similar theme to uh, the manifesto just never happened because that would have been the best way both to enable internal efficiencies within departments and agencies across the sector and to bring public and private and voluntary sectors together so that you can plug together and plug and play in the, the lego brick analogy the best of the different services out there and i guess the other bit that frustrates me is some of the the grand programs, uh, Leslie mentioned um, Verify, you know, we don't have a clear identity uh, policy in the UK. Well, we may have a clear policy. We don't have a clear usable product at the moment, which is a precursor to many of these things being better deliv delivered online for both citizens and businesses. And we really need these core building blocks to be there that should have been there many, many years ago. Thanks very much. And as you know, uh, our last report from the Institute uh, talked a lot about APIs and why half of Martha's report hadn't been implemented. Um, so I've got two here and then one here. Hello, John Newton from Fujitsu. Uh, hello, Jerry. Hi. Mark. Um, two quick points. Lego bricks, does that include the pension payment system that went live in 1987 and works perfectly now and I think probably will carry on doing until somebody invents another way. And which systems that run on? It's not. It's nothing to do with those, actually, anymore. It was written by the post office, as I understand it, in COBOL. <laughs> the point about that is it would be a Lego brick, as would be, because I don't think I worry that double-entry bookkeeping was invented in the 16th century or that the railway line from London to Birmingham was built in 1830. It, it's just there, and it's a piece of infrastructure, and we use that infrastructure as part of the whole thing. And that's the second point. We talk about the way we do things rather than the outcomes and aspirations that we're trying to achieve. And it always seems to come down to a bit of, if we do it digitally or we do it agile or we do it this way, small business, that way, big business, rather than what is the outcome for society in the NHS, in local authorities that we're trying to get. Thank you. Please pass the mic to your right. Yeah. Uh, Chris Francis, SAP. Uh, many thanks, yes. Uh, been here before. Um, um, my question is, it echoes some of the earlier points, so I'll keep it brief. Um, many of the functions you're talking about, the Lego bricks, are not only not unique to a specific part of public sector, they're not unique to any organisation. Um, you know, procurement, finance, labour force, travel, um, all, all payments, all those things. Um, and we already have a public cloud-first policy, at least for central government and agencies. And we do see people going out to the market for those 
platforms. They're not government as a platform, but they're, they're, they're the Lego brick as a platform. But it's very, very patchy. And in the same government, you can, you can go and find groups of people with contractors in effect running a, a software company inside a department with a customer of one. So why has we got such a diverse set of practices? Why can't we scale up and spread the best practice? Thank you. And down the front here. Thank you, Sam from Med Confidential. Um, Lego government sounds like something slightly sore for citizens to stand on. Um, given that last week Labour supported a public option as part of what they would see as continuing verify, what about this is actually anything more than a public option for Capita and ATOS? Okay, Jerry, we'll start with you this time. Uh, back to Chris's point maybe first, which um, I think that variability is part of what we're talking about, of why if this was all published and much more open and we could see what was going on in different places, we would begin to see what the good looked like and what the less good looked like, which in itself would help hopefully generate some of the right behaviours and self-correcting um, you know, self-correcting some of those behaviours that we see out there and, and encouraging people to move more towards a consumption model where that makes sense or indeed a you know, bespoke uh, special programme where that actually meets the original needs. Um, the outcomes, absolutely tell you, there's very much what the paper says. If we can get back to what is the policy outcome and if we had, you know, paraphrasing that beverage quote at the beginning, if we had a clear sheet how would we do some of these things now? Would we even need transactional services, whether delivered through websites or APIs, if we had the right data in the right place and government could potentially become much more capable of pushing services to people rather than asking people to come to it all the time? And you see that a bit with the stats around GovUK, as if it's inherently a great thing that more and more people come to a big government website. I would think if services are getting better over time, hopefully you would be doing the opposite and seeing less and less eyeballs because it indicates people are having to come to look for something or transact for some purpose. Um, I don't really get how this might help capital someone because it's actually about a disinfectant of transparency and publicity. And if we saw all of this stuff openly published, we could begin to challenge openly and say, why are you spending that amount of money with an SI costing four million a year when actually there's somebody over here who could do it for 50,000 a year? And that's back to some of the early change that Francis Morgan people drove in government by beginning to gather all that data into the centre with the spend controls, which wasn't just about a big stick to hit departments with, although it probably felt like that to some of them. It was just to get visibility across the whole of government of what are we spending the money on and are we getting good value? Leslie? I liked John's point around, you know, should we talk around outcomes more? And yes, we should. I think the key phrase in there is talk. Um, so a lot of this for me isn't about IT at all. Actually, it's about people and it's about communication between people. Uh, and maybe there is a role for, for institutions like here and elsewhere to act as a convener for those discussions to happen, to marry those, you know, somebody's doing a similar thing over here with over here, and what can we both learn from each other? Because it's from those conversations that actually you are able to benchmark, you are able to learn from other people's mistakes, which are often more valuable than some shining star who's, you know, done something wonderful. It's that convening and discussion and talking, I think, which can make a huge difference. Where Jerry hasn't already answered. Yep, okay, um, so in just, relation just to briefly, um, yes. So um, 
I think some of this is about actually um, uh, technology having taken over far too much of the conversation here. Um, if you look at some of the literature, wearing an academic hat for a second, you know, um, uh, the most recent, successful recent book about digital transformation is called From Pipes to Platforms. Um, back to the business model. You know, we have uh, a lot of commentators would point to the arrival of the internet as having triggered um, a change from vertically integrated organizations to horizontal value chains. Uh, you know, you look at you know, look at a traditional Hollywood studio in the 30s, they owned everybody from the script writers to the TV studios, the cameramen, to all the way through to the, uh, to the movie theatres. Now, if you look at a, a modern value chain for, for uh, video production, etc., there are all sorts of very, very specialist players and they all play with other people because, of course, everybody's focusing on the place where they add value. Um, recently, um, I had a great experience with my local council. I sat down with the... My neighbour happens to be um, a, a, the guy in charge of technology, the council in charge of technology. They're about to spend 100 grand on building um, a new website. And it's a small council, doesn't have much money. As a result of our discussion, that council now spends £14 a month, one four pounds a month on the council website, which is a taxpayer. Uh, it's great, and that's fully justifiable um, because of a shift, encouraging a shift from government's going to build this, government is going to do this in a kind of vertically owned way to actually really starting to think about can we consume something. There is no public value. We talk about public value a lot in, in our green paper especially. Where is the public value for public sector involvement as opposed to actually the public value in consuming probably a utility commodity from the private sector. So it's a move from, from, from mediating all of our public transactions government is moving towards being a broker of those transactions and that, I think it's a significant <coughs> shift. Thank you very much. We've got six minutes and I want to get another question round in uh, and so I'm going to ask you sir and then uh, the woman over there uh, and then a uh, gentleman in the middle there. Uh, two, two challenges. Uh, much, uh, introduce yourself. John Geeve, I'm chairman of Nesta now so ex of Whitehall. Obviously there's a massive man here and we'd all agree with Two challenges. You do very much take the frontline good, back office bad syndrome. So it's good for nurses to ask you for the 17th time to say what your name is, but it's bad, you know, back office to have someone who makes a better data system so she doesn't have to do it. Uh, and I, I wonder whether that's limited your ambition. I mean, 46 billion, a huge number, about 5 or 6% of public spending over 10 years. It's not that fantastically significant. Surely the really big changes are going to come by changing the sort of service that we offer and so on. Uh, second challenge, I guess you wrote most of this before Carillion, let alone Facebook, and the growing distrust of the big contractors and platform companies, you quote them all with great approval here, Amazon, <laughs> why aren't you using Amazon Cloud? That's actually giving your data to uh, these big platforms. So has that caused you to rethink at all? Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ruth Marshall from the Government Office for Science. Um, could you just say a little bit more, uh, anyone on the panel, about the balance in your report between standardised Lego brick approaches um, and bottom-up innovation? Because the two of them sounded to me to be a little bit in contradiction with each other. Interesting. Yep. And this gentleman. Yep. Uh, James, 
James Kidner from Improbable. We're a tech startup, but I came to it out of government for 30 years. And I, if I'm the last question, I want to end on an upbeat note. I think this is really exciting. I think that there's an awful lot in this, even if we can't all be uh, as efficient as Amazon. And uh, yeah, I'm always stru I'm struck by Leslie's point about the difficulty that if you put a figure on it, you always tend to put the stars on it. You describe Amazon and Apple and things. You don't talk about Enron and Carillion as our role models in this transformation. Um, but I do, I want to pick up Leslie's other point, that it's ultimately the culture, it's the anthropology, not the technology that will drive this. And my, I'm very much struck that government is hamstrung by a risk aversion, by an unwillingness to try out new things. And getting that from the tech sector or the private sector into government is a major challenge. Thank you. We've got about three minutes to answer some fairly substantial questions there. So, Mark, you've got about 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's completely impossible. Um, okay, I'll take one of them. Um, I'll take the, the balance between open standards and, and innovation. So I suppose, um, you know, quite a lot of, again, on the academic hat for a second, quite a lot of the, the literature describes a kind of opening up effect. So, so some people would call it a tight, loose, Francis Maud actually calls it a tight, loose dynamic. So in other words, if you can tighten down open standards themselves, a thousand flowers will, will bloom, if you like. Again, it's designed for, for consistency rather than uniformity. In fact, that's, that's kind of almost answers it. But if we have more time, give you lots of examples of how that works. Um, and you're absolutely right in calling it that, particularly for local government. People say, localism agenda, you can't tell us what to do. But actually, the answer is you could be far more locally appropriate and reconfigured using configurable standard Lego bricks. Thank you. Leslie? Let me just pick up on the labelling thing, because I agree with you on bad back office and stuff. I was going to admit to being an overhead earlier. <laughs> but then I, I thought, it's better to claim the leadership role, because that's kind of much more productive. I don't think labels like that are actually helpful. It's, it's the convening of the dialogue and, as I said earlier, the learning from others. And I agree with you on risk aversion, uh, but it's public money, right? Kerry, you have the last word, almost. Let's pick up on uh, your... Um, I, I think it is a big problem that you put your finger on. In the public sector, it's very hard for the civil service to feel empowered to admit mistakes and to share the learnings that come out of those, which is why I think possibly some of us have been hearing this for 20 or 30 years, in that there's a pattern of repetition because there's a lack of corporate memory, there's a lack of transparency about things that were tried in the past, what went wrong. And I, I think it'd be fantastic if we could see a culture that was much more open and supportive and without the tabloids jumping on you know, civil servants' backs every time something goes slightly wrong because that further inhibits the ability to experiment, learn what does work and what doesn't work. And I, I think one of the early promises of GDS was the work in the open, it makes things better. And it was definitely true. And I think it's a shame that seems to have been retreated from even the 25 exemplars. We never really saw open publication of all the lessons from them. Because to me, that was the most important thing of, of the exemplars, was what, not, not just what worked, but what didn't work and why and what can we learn from that. Thank you. Uh, so I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to take all the questions, um, but there, there is a chance uh, over a drink in a few minutes uh, to, uh, to perhaps um, collar somebody and, and uh, make your point or ask your question. Um, I don't, the Communist Manifesto had like two authors or something, did it? I mean, this had, this had loads, of, loads of authors, and it's clearly a lot better and a lot more interesting. Um, and it also talks quite a lot about Marx, which is interesting. Um, so, um, uh, thanks to the professor here. Um, so, um, I, I, I commend it to you. Um, and uh, finally, uh, I please ask you to join me in thanking uh, Jerry, 
Leslie and Mark.